HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Explore Ithaca's waterfalls, orchards, and craft beverage scene. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Matthew Martin is a remarkable man. To date, Matt and his volunteers have fed over 39 million hungry people around the world, in Haiti, in New England, and now over a million meals to Ukraine. Homeless in college, Matt became a Lutheran minister and assumed he'd spend his life as a youth minister living quietly somewhere in the Midwest. But that's not what happened. Let's have a listen. I grew up in a single mother home. I have an older brother, a younger sister, and we were churchgoers every Sunday. We're Lutheran from the Midwest. I hadn't planned on becoming a pastor, certainly. I went off to college and studied what I thought was going to be a career in maybe business or communications. Halfway through my college career, I was homeless. Halfway through my high school career, I almost died of a ruptured appendix. So I had a couple pretty tumultuous times uh, there in just a few years. So I uh, w- was going to a very expensive college and my parents couldn't afford to help me, uh, being that they were divorced. My mom's a waitress, my dad's a truck driver, so they were barely making it, and I got halfway through and I just ran out of money. I was trying to work my way through college, working full-time, going to school full-time, and your body just reaches a limit, even when you're 20. (laughs) So I just took a semester off, decided it was better to have no expenses, so I just lived out of the trunk of my car and grabbed a couple uh, pizza delivery jobs, because I got free food and I just relied on my friends that I had made in my first couple years of college to support me with housing, kind of impromptu each night. So I never did have to sleep in my car, but it was October, November, and December in Minnesota, which are not really tropical months. (laughs) So uh, I had just worked, uh, worked about 100 hours a week, made about 15 bucks an hour, uh, which is kind of laughable that, you know, I've been out of college now for a decade, two decades and a half, 25 years into this 
adult journey of a career and the minimum wage is still not $15 an hour until January 1st. So I, uh, with no expenses and all that uh, hours and uh, that high wage at the time, I uh, just got enough money to get back into college. When I got back, I kind of glanced back over my last hundred days and realized all the people that cared for me were the Christians on campus. Uh, so I thought ministry might be worth uh, exploring. So the other half of my college career was just figuring out what I wanted to do with my life so that more people uh, didn't have to go through what I had just gone through. And the answer seemed to be uh, youth ministry. So I got ordained uh, so that I could um, do a really credible youth ministry within a church. And I found my way quickly into mission work with the youth. I went on 26 week-long trips with youth over the summers. I did a lot of 30-hour famines. I think 16 years in a row we did that where uh, youth actually experienced hunger. And then I kind of just naturally went right into seminary. Uh, after becoming a pastor, I did youth work for nine years. Unfortunately, it took me nine years of education to become a youth pastor in the Lutheran Church. So not the best return on investment. <laughs> Why does it take nine years? Nine years after college? So you have to have um, a college degree and a master's degree. And in order to be a youth pastor, I had a master's in youth and family ministry. So I actually have two master's degrees. My wife got a master's in elementary ed, so we were going to be a preacher and a teacher. Uh, that was the idea. Uh, and we uh, were doing what we did with youth, and she worked with kids. She's a fourth grade teacher. And then we got to this um, kind of strange phase for us. We had a couple small children and almost no money because kids are expensive, and we were a preacher and a teacher. So we were actually given a vacation. We hadn't had a vacation in five years because we had a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and we went on the trip. It was kind of on accident that we even met the person that gave us the trip. We were at a conference and we were just having discussion about school debt and I had the most out of everybody there. And this particular pastor, her husband, was a doctor at the Mayo Clinic, so they had lots of money but not a lot of time. And we had summers that were, other than our youth mission trips, we kind of had a lower uh, summer availability to go places, but we never had any money to go somewhere. And they had a vacation paid for that they gave us. And honestly, to this day, I cannot remember the pastor's name even because I met her at the conference. We went on the vacation. Uh, it was to Virginia. It's where they always went uh, over the summer. We're enjoying the week-long vacation with our two little kids. And my wife woke up and said, uh, we need to move to New England. So I just mentioned that we've been out of college uh, for 25 years. Um, we got married right before we finished college. So we were about halfway into our married life at this point. Um, when we went on that trip and she said, we, we need to move to New England. I can't explain why. I just called the bishop and everything at, to that point had worked <laughs> when I just, just went with, uh, you know, what. Had she ever been to New England? So we had only ever been to New England once. We got married in August. So uh, every summer in the eight years before we had any children, we did go on a camping trip usually. And we went to Bar Harbor once. So loved it kind of hit all the New England states and never imagined we'd ever be back because there's so many places to go in the world. When she said, we need to move to New England, I was like, I'm not even sure what states are in New England. <laughs> like you could quiz me right now. And I, the number, I, I'm having trouble remembering that, much less all the names of these little states we went through. So when we uh, ended up calling up the bishop, I explained what I had done with my career thus far in ministry. And she said, we have this perfect fit for you. It's in Quincy. And I had no idea what state Quincy was even in. I had never even heard of it. <laughs> Our first call was in Illinois, so we pronounced it Quincy, uh, Illinois. But uh, yeah, we were just kind of shocked that this was going to happen. The call process takes about four months to get through. And we uh, ended up relocating. And we got here. We had spent five or six years with this youth ministry mission stuff 
feeding about a million people overseas doing this meal packaging gig that I now do full-time and have for 11 years. But we arrived with just one assembly line, but the next day after we arrived, the Haiti earthquake happened and 80 or 90% of their buildings fell down. There was a couple hundred orphans that our church was connected to, this church we've been serving for 24 hours. And they said, hey, let's take that assembly line, let's pack some meals, let's get them to Haiti. So we started doing that. And did that for 18 months, because anytime there's a crisis like Ukraine, it languishes for years, usually, and decades even. Uh, Haiti's still recovering, and then they got hit with Hurricane Matthew. So it's like there's always a need globally, but all the hunger work I had done up to that point was world hunger. There wasn't really a thought to local hunger. But we served that church for 18 months, discovered that there was more hungry people on the planet than there had ever been. It had reached a billion for the first time, and there was 7 billion people on the planet at that point uh, 11 years ago. So it was one out of seven. It was super easy math. But in Maine, one out of three kids were hungry. And in America, one out of four kids were hungry. So we were like, maybe the reason we got called out here in this weird way is to do this hunger thing because no one had ever done it before. The people in Quincy, this was all brand new to them, really anybody in New England. And it started to get known in our synod, which is all the Lutheran churches in New England. We thought maybe this is the time to figure out what we're actually supposed to be doing. My wife never did get a teaching job, so she wasn't teaching. She was raising our children and tutoring, and she ended up writing a book and then wrote another book. So she's now an author, and I'm the meal packaging guy. Where are you getting the food? What's an assembly line? How does the packaging actually happen? Just break it down for me because I don't know. I've never experienced it. So let me know. How how actually are you doing this? The way it worked is that Pastor Mark's church, their sanctuary space was, you could clear all the chairs out of it. So you have to set these tables up somewhere. And we didn't have a warehouse at the time. We were just starting this. So when he said, hey, I'll help you start that meal packaging gig. If you help me start my church, I'm like, sweet. We moved down to Marshfield and we got that one assembly line we had and we uh, started kind of just showing people how the process works. So if you can envision a couple long tables, eight foot long rectangular tables, kind of end to end, that makes up an assembly line in size. The first table is a bunch of bins pouring different ingredients through a funnel. When we first started, Outreach had never packed a domestic meal. They'd never had a regional program. So everything that had done had been since my boss and his wife retired. They'd been at the international deal seven years, just packing all the meals we can. I had been doing it with a different organization for the past six years. So we kind of started at the same time, but the whole game at that point was feeding people overseas. When the Haiti earthquake happens or a tsunami somewhere, there's an earthquake here or there. Any natural disaster where there's a bunch of people, like the Ukraine situation where there's refugees, it was always sending meals overseas but they had to be funded and packed somewhere. Uh, That was happening here in America, many different organizations, and then they'd get on a boat, on a plane, they'd go somewhere else. But it became a domestic thing when we kind of transitioned down to Marshfield. So what are you feeding them? When you say pouring it into a funnel and going, I'm wondering, you know, I'm sure you're not sending anything that isn't shelf-stable. So when you say you're packaging a meal, like... Like, what are you sending to Ukraine? What does it look like? What's in the packages? So we now have 10 different kinds of meals. At the time when we first launched domestic, there was just two. So one was an Easy Mac. One was the beans and rice. The beans and rice was a natural transition from our international meal, which just didn't include beans. All the protein came from soybeans. So it did include beans, but it wasn't something recognizable to people as beans. What they recognized was rice. You boil water to make this rice. 
There was also some veggies. There was the protein from soybeans. There was a vitamin pack. Before my boss and his wife got involved in feeding people, there was a gentleman decades ago that did this, and he developed that vitamin pack. So it's basically 21 vitamins and minerals, meets the nutritional deficiency of anybody on the planet. It's a seasoning in that beans and rice meal. So we just added the pinto beans so it could become a domestic option because Americans will eat beans and rice. Um, we also at the same time took kind of all those same four components and made an easy mac. So whereas rice was the base ingredient in the first one, pasta became the base ingredient obviously in the easy mac. Um, the cheese milk and butter pack provided the flavoring and those 21 vitamins and minerals. And then the soybean protein goes in, it doesn't taste like anything, but it's just wicked nutritious. So easy mac meal that we would provide would have those vitamins and minerals, 11 grams of protein. It actually ends up being five times as nutritious as Kraft Easy Mac, which every kid in America has eaten. And it's half as expensive to produce because the volunteers come and pack the meals. And that's a really interesting thing that's kind of morphed during the pandemic is we used to rely on Sanctuary Church or a Lions Club in Worcester or a different group somewhere in New England that would have a space like the church had a community space that you could set tables up that we could put the bins on and the funnels up and the second half of the line is weigh it, seal it, box it. So after everything goes in the bag, you're making sure that it's the right weight so it meets the nutrition on the bag. Then you heat seal it so it's good nutritionally for a couple of years. Uh, it's three-ply bag, so it's once it's in there and it goes in the box, we were, for the first time, sending it to local food pantries, uh, Greater Boston Food Bank, different places like that, backpack programs, homeless shelters, where clients could actually get the meals and then they just need to boil water to make them. So the whole motto behind the whole thing is ending hunger, enriching lives. So for the first time ever, we were ending local hunger, and then we were mobilizing groups from all over. We'd done that before. But then when the pandemic hit, we were starting to get local volunteers coming to our warehouse to be able to pack the meals. So whereas prior to doing this domestic thing, we'd fed a million people, we've now fed 39 million people. A ton of them during the pandemic. 2020 was our biggest year. 2022 might be our biggest let, year yet. Let me make sure I heard this right. 39 million people. Yep. And in the period of the pandemic, you kind of went from doing it in the little church and suddenly you're doing it in a whole big warehouse and you sort of morphed into major, major traction. Yeah, and we even got a bigger warehouse, unbelievably. So we had our first quote unquote warehouse space was the little storage closet off the lobby of the church <laughs> where we could fit about one pallet worth of product. We can fit 72 pallets worth of product in our new warehouse that we've had for just over a year now. Because the first couple of years with the pandemic, we've been packing in the warehouse we had which used to literally just be warehouse space. So it wasn't really big enough to have assembly lines, but the governor, the health department, my boss, when they all got together and talked about how to pack during the pandemic, we just kind of like rolled right into it, but we had to like make room. We tore walls out of our warehouse and moved the, everything around, pulled the cargo van out, like made all the room we could get, and then tried to get really brave South Shore volunteers to come out and pack. Well, now we have like 1,200 volunteers that want to come on a regular basis to pack these meals, school groups and different, the variety is endless, but the whole point is we have 1,200 groups throughout New England, but 1,200 also warehouse volunteers that want to pack. So if we had unlimited funds, we could literally pack around the clock because the need is so great. Currently there's 1.7 million hungry people just in New England and then all those Ukrainian refugees that we've been feeding, we've provided a million meals there. So it's kind of limitless on the back end 
Um, we're starting to get some grants. We're starting to get some really generous donors. Um, one gives about 40 grand a year to us. And for 75 bucks, we can fill another box and feed a couple hundred people. Um, so we're just trying to get all those components to go together. But funding is crucial. We've got all these volunteers that want to do it more. New people, every time we have a shift, there's literally a new volunteer there every single time. And then we have about 400 different places throughout New England that want the meals, that will take them and get them out to clients that can boil water and eat them and have nutritious meals in their life. Um, so that's kind of the process, and we're just continually growing and it's unfurling. So it, the volunteer part is very cool. I mean, you have whole families, you have whole school teams, you have whole schools, whole churches, whole communities, and they do it as sort of almost like a barn raising that day. Mm -hmm. But you can't do it every day. You can't pack the, the food every day. So if we had funding, we could pack the food every day. We've got that many groups that want to do it. So whenever a group wants to get involved, I always have to ask, do you have any funding? If they don't have any funding, then I wait for funding to come through, which we're continuing collecting money from all over New England. We always pack the meals, and if they're not designated for Ukraine, we get those meals back to where they were funded from. So I just looked at the numbers again. Um, there are eight Feeding America food banks in New England. So every state has one except Massachusetts has three. So there's one in the Berkshires, one in Worcester County, and Greater Boston Food Bank. If you just made eight buckets, and you took all the funding that was poured into them and we turned it into meals and got it back into those areas, 47% of our meals go to Greater Boston. So almost half, 12% um, go out to Worcester County and Berkshires. So we actually have 41% that go out through the other five states. So there are more hungry New Englanders fed right in our neck of the woods than all those other five New England states combined. That's just how much people have gotten invested in this since the pandemic. They might not know which of their neighbors are hungry, but they do know that there's currently about 120,000 hungry people on the South Shore alone, that we could crank out 120,000 meals a day and just spread them out around here and still not meet the need that's just right around here. So when people get wind of that, they see they can give a bunch of money, they can give a bunch of time or some combination of both, but then we produce as many meals as we can and give them out for free to the people who need them. Um, so that's just the process we do over and over again, and we're up to 39 million. And we'll be back with Matt in a minute to hear how he manages to recruit and organize his band of volunteers. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. The area is well-known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. You can hear from the region's cider makers directly on HRN's series, Hardcore. There is something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. The second season of Hardcore is out now. You can learn all about apples and fermentation and dive into how cider makers and their communities are working to create an equitable industry and one that is resilient to climate change. Listen to Hardcore on your favorite podcast app.
Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying voices from all across our food system. Today, I'm asking listeners to take part in our summer membership drive by helping sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, you can receive some great HRN swag, including the HRN cap, wine carrier, or a special spice set from Burlap and Barrel. By becoming a member, you'll play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member today. Thank you for your support. And we're back with Matthew Martin. So are people shocked that there's so much hunger? So part of the Ending Hunger, Enriching Lives piece is that a lot of people don't know the extent of hunger. When I share the statistics, especially when the pandemic first hit and hunger doubled around here and the entire state of New Hampshire, hunger doubled, people were like, wow, I didn't even know this was an issue until I'm looking at the news and I'm seeing a four-hour-long food line that professional people are standing in because they used to have a job and then all of a sudden they don't or they can't. They're on furlough indefinitely. Like they're just, there was so much... Uh, up in the air that a lot of people started paying attention for the first time and they're like wow this is crazy then when we get to the warehouse and they pack meals like i said there's always a new person there we share some of these statistics of you know how we're on this roller coaster ride of more hunger than we've ever had oh look we're down to a 20-year low boom we have more hunger again now than we've ever had and now it's starting to come down eyes are opened when they hear those type of numbers a couple million hungry new englanders when he started this, and then there was more than that during the pandemic at the very beginning, and now it's, you're driving it down again. And then they also start to learn about the issue we have uh, really countrywide with minimum wages just not being enough to actually provide housing. So any minimum wage jobs that are out there are really for kids. I've got teenagers. They can work at a minimum wage job, but if they were adults trying to find housing for their family, it just doesn't happen. When I was homeless, I worked three straight months, 100 hours a week, I was 20 and I could barely sustain that for that long and I had to just take a deep breath and start college again. There's a lot of adults that if they made minimum wage in Massachusetts, we're the uh, state that's third for most expensive housing. So only California and Hawaii have more expensive housing than we do. We have a high minimum wage, but when you do the math, 14 and a quarter, which it is right now, would have to be like 36 for someone to actually just work that and be able to afford and they're just uh, talking about a two-bedroom home for rent they're not trying to buy a home they're just trying to live somewhere if they made minimum wage they have to work 107 hours a week it's even worse in new hampshire it's the only other state in new england that's worse than massachusetts for that and up there you have to work all but like 39 hours to be able to afford housing it's insane so before the pandemic hit a lot of people got our meals simply because their rent was too expensive or they had too many school loans or medical or dental was more than they could handle it's uh, too much bread, not enough peanut butter problem is what I say. And when you can provide free, really nutritious, really easy to make meals for folks, it gives them hope and sustains them until they can get into a situation where they either make more money or somehow can have less expenses or something happens, student loan forgiveness, or something happens where their, their situation changes. But then the pandemic hit and then it was like a free-for-all. There was so much need. That's why we've been so busy and ever expanding because more and more people are finding out about it all the time. More and more people are realizing that for 35 cents, you can feed either a Ukrainian refugee or somebody who's hungry around you in your neighborhood. 
it's hardly anything, but somebody's got 35 bucks or 3,500 bucks, or like I said, one person gives 40 grand a year. That makes a gigantic impact, allows us to pack a bunch of meals. You've got, uh, during the first part of the pandemic, a lot of homeschool kids that their families, the whole homeschool network was coming. Channel 25 in Boston did a story on us and they were talking to, Miss Massachusetts was there with a bunch of homeschool kids and retired veterans. It was just a mishmash of folks, but it's people that could be there during the day, during the week, when we were all just kind of figuring out, can we get out of quarantine? Like, what are we doing? But uh, some people have a lot of uh, time. Some organizations exist to volunteer. <laughs> There's a group called South Shore Professionals with, through the chamber that's just super excited to, to do stuff because they've got the resources, like the human resources to do the volunteering part. And we just need those too. We've got plenty of pantries. We've got uh, plenty of need, unfortunately, but we just need money and, and people and we can put together and make a huge impact on local hunger. So when people volunteer, it's kind of a joyous thing for them to do. They feel that they're not just giving money, they're not just giving sort of like their mental energy, they're actually using their hands and it feels very mm -hmm. real to them. How does food get to Ukraine? How do you handle all of that? Is that through the church or that's through, I mean, where does the church fit into any of this or does it not now? So um, we have worked with 87 different kind of groups. So out of our top 10, four of them are denominations, they're churches. Um, Catholics are vying to get in our top 10 and push Episcopalians out, but there's a lot of church people involved, but there's a lot of students, there's a lot of nonprofits, there's, the list goes on for uh, that, but really what it is is connections. So we uh, recently formed an advisory team. One of the members of that happens to go to a church in Duxbury. He knew somebody who knew somebody who uh, worked with BOC International in Boston. So when we first started talking about how to get meals to Ukraine, we thought, oh, the cost of this is going to double because it's going to be the cost of 35 cents feed somebody, but then we have to get them there. And BOC is a freight forwarding service. They're gigantic, they're generous, and they actually had all the routes planned and knew what they had to do to get the meals right into the capital uh, in uh, Ukraine. And they said, we're going to uh, fund the first million meals you send, we're going to take care of it. You just get them packed, we'll come to your warehouse, we'll put them in a container and we'll send them out. Uh, so very quickly, in a couple months, we had three containers going uh, to Ukraine uh, to get there. Now we're starting to fly them over because somebody, like in a relay race, picked up the second leg of the thing. They're called Direct Relief. So it's another nonprofit that exists to take medical supplies, clothing, food, whatever we have to give, and get it there. So we're obviously doing the food. So our first round of that just uh, happened. We had an event in Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, that community has been super involved in the last few months. They've done four events, packing three pallets of meals every time. And the, the last time they packed, instead of getting them back to Pembroke to get them to uh, BOC International out of Boston, we just direct relief came and picked them right up and threw them on a plane and sent them over. The cost is the same no matter who you want to feed because we have these great groups like BOC International out of Boston and direct relief. I think they're out of New York doing that other second part of it. Normally what happens is a food pantry just comes and loads up. Craig Wolf always does this for veterans in Marshfield. Every month he comes by our warehouse and grabs a dozen boxes to hand them out the radio station in Marshfield on the second Thursdays, I think it is. So we have, would normally fund and pack the meals and then they'd get picked up and distributed locally. We've driven meals to down East Maine or wherever in New England they were funded from to just to get them out. But the Ukraine part is, it's just a different process, but they're, still going through a channel that gets them to the people in need. 
at the exact same cost to donors. Well, this is a this is a pretty intense this is a pretty pretty in intense story. Um, Matt, did you ever think you'd be doing this? Do you think this was a thing you were meant to do, and it just took you that long to discover it? We have been raising a son and a daughter. Our daughter is off to college in a couple of months. Our son has a couple of years of high school left. But we've uh, tried to explain to them that there is a reason you're on the planet. Oftentimes to do what you want to do, if you're going to be a teacher um, and you want to be a, a really good teacher, my wife got a master's before we even got to Massachusetts where a master's is required to keep a teaching job for over five years. You just travel down that path. And she was a fantastic teacher. I think I was a pretty fair youth pastor. I've got a lot of people engaged in hunger and missions and doing what you do. But I do think there is a reason every single person is on this planet. And it has something to do with the greater good, you know, putting your gifts and uh, whatnot into the mix. It's like the stone soup kind of uh, philosophy that if we are all looking out for each other, the world will be a better place. And this happens to be what I'm doing currently is what I'm supposed to be doing. My boss and his wife meant to retire 18 years ago. They're still doing this. Floyd just turned 80. Uh, and this is like super passionate. They had a career before that, uh, had founded the first plastic recycling business in all of North America. So they were making the world a better place in that way. And then they went on a missions trip with some friends, right, as they retired and they saw starvation and they got impassioned to do something about that. They thought it was just going to be for that Tanzania, Kenya area of East Africa, where that village was, where they were doing all kind of projects, uh, clean water, nutritious food, medical care, education, subsistence agriculture. They kind of thought that was going to be their focus. Like in Quincy, our focus was 200 Haitian orphans. They kind of thought that was going to be their specific thing. And now they're feeding people all over the world. And they're the meal packaging organization that does domestic. Nobody else has 10 kind of meals to give out locally. That's what outreach has picked up. They've now fed 675 million people in their retirement. Because after New England launched and we had a region, there's other regions now all the way down all the coasts, Gulf Coast, West Coast, all the way down the East Coast because this kind of got stirred up. So I always tell New Englanders, you got this thing going. It's like the pilgrims off the boat and then, or Facebook streaming across the world, you know, all these different things that happen here that then happen everywhere. That's what we're, domestic meal packaging is really happening in the entire country. 95% of the meals staying domestic to feed hungry people here because New England did it first. It's unbelievable how in 11 years it's unfolded. We're still leading the way. We still do much more than any other region. But the impact we have, it's like that ripple effect. So whatever we're able to do for New England, fantastic. But it's also spreading all the way down and around the whole country so that Americans get to eat. There's a lot of need throughout our country. There's pockets of severe need. And now the outreach program is able to do that all over the whole country for everybody in our country. We all thought, at least domestically, that things would get better after the pandemic. And now they haven't really. I mean, they have, but they haven't really. But now we also have inflation, which is crimping people's budgets again. Do you see the impact of that yet? So the impact is always on the need. Um, there's always really generous people that find resources to share with us so that we can feed people. But I just heard something a couple days ago that 58% of people are paycheck to paycheck. Like they didn't, they're not sure. Uh, I know there's more people that rent than own. I know there's 20 somethings. Most of them are living at home. 
more than not, uh, it's a majority of the, that age kids. If you're not at college, you're in your mom's basement because there's just no way to afford unless somebody bequeaths a house to you. I don't know how you would ever afford a home um, as a 20 something in New England. It's, it's crazy. Just the, the amount of expenses and the inflation. I was at a gas station in Marshfield or Pembroke the other day where there was 20, 25 cars waiting to get gas because it was 30 cents cheaper than the gas station a couple blocks away. I mean, people are pinched, but New Englanders are wicked generous as well. So we're going to get resources. We're going to feed people. But there's the need is not going away. We were driving it down. We had got from 2 million when we started doing this to eight and a half years in. The day before the pandemic hit, we were at a 20-year low. It was 1.4 million. Then overnight, it was 2.1, and now we're down to 1.7. So we're getting somewhere. It may take a couple of years. Um, somebody from Greater Boston was at one of our events, and they said anybody impacted from the pandemic three to five years before they even get back to where they were before they were impacted. So it's kind of like a lot of people's lives or plans or whatever have kind of just been put on hold, and we're just trying to help them through this gap. We're hoping when we come out on the back end that we're going to be at a 25 or 30 or 40 year low, that hunger is going to get pushed way down again. Um, we know we can do it. We've done it before. Now we have this gigantic warehouse. We can have 80 people. South Shore Chamber of Commerce is coming this month in three weeks. And all these local businesses are going to be packing meals and funding and uh, just being generous to their communities, to their people that they're serving with their businesses. They're going to help serve the hungry people in their areas. So we're just looking for more and more partners, but it's really just the simple of who's got a bunch of money. Steven Tyler was just at the police station in Marshfield. If he just wrote a big check, we could pack it. Steven Tyler from Aerosmith. Yeah. Wow. He visits his family in Marshfield all the time. If he was able to just hear about us, write a check, we could literally take and make up a ton of boxes and pack nonstop and get all those meals out throughout New England or wherever he wanted them to go, Ukraine, just greater Boston, whatever. But... We've got some resources coming in for money. We want more regular givers. We've got resources coming in for people. We have a ton of regular people, but we'd love to have more. But it's a teeter-totter. You have to have the resources to buy the stuff to put through the funnel before you can put it through the funnel. So we're always keying in on how to get more resources money-wise. We've got tons of people. We've got tons of need. We just have to keep working the system so that more local people get nutritious food. This is a pretty amazing undertaking. I just love that. I love the whole thing. And Matt, um, if people are listening, what's the most useful thing they can do for you? So if you want to know about us, a pretty easy way is just to Google End Hunger New England, and we're going to pop up, but our website is super simple. It's just End Hunger, and then the initials NE for New England.org. And if you go on there, you're going to see the, the simple approach, donate. There's four ways to give online volunteer you can get to our sign up genius you can see three shifts available one is for the chamber so if your chamber member dive into there otherwise grab one of the other two or both uh, and then receive the next tab down is if you run a backpack program a homeless shelter food pantry you're part of a food bank click on that you email me you get into our system we got 400 places to get them we'd love to have 800 places that get them uh, and then the last thing on the bottom is just promote so it's our social media it's our news stories it's our whatever you could use to share this story with other people is there uh, and then you just we just keep doing it it's rinse repeat it's donate volunteer receive we've done that more people tell people about it so we get more donors we get more volunteers we get more recipient groups and we just keep it's like an avalanche happening you just keep priming the pump this is great thanks so much matt for all the good you do 
And listeners, if you want to help with your hands or your pocketbook, the website is endhungerne.org. That's endhungerne, as in New England, .org. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.